Well, one of my favorite songs that we sing here in this church is He Will Hold Me Fast. And we plan to sing that at the end of our, our worship service. You know, if you consider the lyrics to that song, it contains really good encouraging news, and it also contains some hard news. Think about the, the hard news. It, it's clear and it's plain in that song that life will be hard. The Christian life will be hard. God's Word prepares us to understand that, and I think that that song reflects that biblical truth. The Christian life will involve hardships. There's fear and there's temptation that you and I regularly face. The lyrics speak of, when I fear my faith will fail, when the tempter would prevail. And that song we sing of, of life's fearful path, which maybe you come in this morning knowing that path all too well. Sometimes we find ourselves in desperate situations, reflected in the line, I could never keep my hold. And while we desire to love God more and to love and to serve others more, too many times, like the song says, our love is often cold. Those lyrics, they sing of the hard news, the reality of living in a fallen world, this side of glory. But consider that there's great comfort in that song as well. We keep repeating the same lyrics in that song, He will hold me fast. We keep singing, He will hold me fast. We're proclaiming truth and we're reminding one another of the hope that we've been given in Jesus Christ. That though we face all of those hardships, by God's grace, those hardships serve to remind us of our confidence, that our confidence is not found in ourselves. As Christians, we don't depend on our own strength to hold us fast. It wouldn't be an encouraging song to sing, I will hold myself fast. I will hold myself fast. That wouldn't be encouraging. We'd be a nervous wreck if that was the truth of life this side of glory. Rather, we sing as a church and we confess our confidence, Christ will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. I can't wait to sing that song and just I feel like singing it now, but I really don't think I'd bless you with a solo. So I will save that at the end where we can bless one another and sing that song together. Well, as we look this morning in the New Testament book of Jude, we're reminded of hardships that Christian faith, of uh, the Christians face rather. There's a faith to contend for. There's a, a real fight that we're all called into, a fight with, for faith that will require great effort. But Jude also wants us to know of the safety and the security we have in Jesus Christ as believers, that Christ will hold you fast, that the one who called you loves you and indeed will keep you until the end. So this morning we begin a, a three-part sermon series in the New Testament book of Jude. Jude's only 25 verses, so it's a short and brief letter, but there's a lot to unpack in the book of Jude. And before I read through the passage this morning, I want to give you the main idea of what we're going to see in Jude verses 1 through 4. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the main idea. The confidence to contend for the faith is found in our calling. The confidence to contend for the faith is found in our calling. Turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to, to Jude. It's just one chapter. 
Uh, so we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. The best way for you to stay engaged in the sermon is to open up a copy of God's Word, the Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, take that Bible right in front of you this morning. It's in the pew rack there. Take it home with you, so use it during the service. But feel free to take it home with you as a gift from us to you. And if you'd like to read the Bible with someone here in this church to learn more about who God is and what He's done in Jesus, see any of our staff, any of our pastors at the door afterwards. Let me read for us Jude 1 through 4. If you're using that pew Bible, by the way, that's on page 1027. Page 1027 comes right before the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Jude verses 1 through 4. Let me read this for us as we begin. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of, God, of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, as we make our way through verses 1 through 4 this morning, I want us to see there's really two parts to our outline. I want us to consider two responses to this passage. That'll serve as our outline this morning, two responses. The first response we see in verses 1 and 2, find confidence in your calling. That's the first response in verses 1 and 2, find confidence in your calling. Well, this book is what we call an epistle or letter, and it's a letter that contains doctrine and directions. So, so ancient letters from the Greco-Roman period, they had the form where it were typically right there in the beginning of the greeting, it opened up with the name of the sender and the recipient right away. And that's why we see in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of, of James. Now, the traditional view of this book is that the Jude mentioned here is that he was the brother of Jesus. I know it says he was the brother of James, but in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, both James and Jude are listed among Jesus' brothers and sisters. So James, Jude's name specifically given there in Mark 6, verse 3, the longer form of his name, Judas, given there. Now, James is most likely uh, James, the leader of the Jerusalem church. You can read more about him in Acts chapter 15. This is also the James who, who wrote the book of James, in the New Testament. Now, notice that Jude introduces himself as the brother of James, but he doesn't introduce himself as the brother of Jesus, but rather as servant of Jesus Christ. A servant is one who's under the authority of another, one who's submitted to another, under the control and authority. And Jude identifies himself as one submitted to Jesus, living in submission under the lordship of Jesus and his kingly authority. Now, this is a title, though, of humility. He's saying, my life is not my own. I exist to serve Jesus. But it's also a title of honor. There is no one greater to submit yourself to than Jesus Christ. There is no one greater to serve than Jesus. There is no greater name you could bear and be connected to than the name of Jesus the Son of God. In Him there is salvation and grace and mercy and forgiveness of sins. 
Now, what's interesting about Jude identifying himself as a servant of Jesus is that Jesus' family didn't initially believe in him and follow him during his earthly ministry. John records in his gospel in John chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers, talking about Jesus, for not even his brothers believed in him. So during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jude didn't serve Jesus or follow him or believe in him. What that means is most likely after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jude came to see who Jesus really was. He wasn't just big brother. But by the way, I mean, how would it be to have Jesus as your big brother? You never got picked on, right? He'd have been so generous to you, always kind of giving you what's best. It would have been an awesome family relationship. But they really weren't expecting for their big brother to be the long-awaited-for Messiah. But he came to recognize, apparently, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's risen from the dead. This wasn't just big brother. This is the one we've been waiting for for thousands of years. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And by God's grace, Judas went from being only a brother of Jesus to becoming a servant of Jesus. By God's grace, he came to put his faith in his brother, Jesus, as the Son of God. You see, in Jesus alone, there is forgiveness of sins for our sin against God. For anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, God will forgive your sins right now for anyone who would change their mind about their sin against God and see salvation and forgiveness offered through Jesus' death on the cross to pay for sin and His resurrection from the dead that Jesus extends new life and forgiveness to anyone who would turn and trust in Him. Therefore, all who believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins are transformed to be His servants. That's your identity this morning. Well, I wonder if you've come this morning, are you a servant of Jesus? Maybe you're not. Well, you don't have to leave this service today that way. You can turn and trust in Jesus this morning. Again, if you want to learn more about what that would look like, Talk to any member of our church or see any of our pastors or staff on the way out. We'd love to talk with you more about what it looked like for you to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus today. And for those that are here, brothers and sisters in Christ who already put their faith in Jesus, how might you live as a more faithful servant of Jesus? He owns us. He owns our time. Our life is not our, our own. We've been purchased, paid for, for the price with the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is our joy, it's our honor to serve Him. May we pray for grace to serve Him more. Jude, I mentioned earlier that he, in the introductions, ancient letters typically mention the recipients in the greeting of the letter. And we don't see a specific recipient address, though likely he was writing to a specific church or even a group of local churches. I love the recipient addressed in this letter. Verse 1, the recipient, to those who are called. Rather than address a specific church, he gives a description of our common salvation, a beautiful description of salvation. Christians, first off, are those who are called, called by the Spirit of God. That word called, it doesn't merely mean invited, like, hey, come on, it's time for dinner. It doesn't mean just like an, an invitation. Rather, it means to be brought into, to be brought into a saving relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there certainly are general callings or invitations, and that's when the, a verbal proclamation 
of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus goes out. We want to be a part of, as a church of, of that general calling of getting the gospel out amongst our family and friends and our neighborhood and the city and indeed to the nations. But what Jude references here with the word called refers to what we call an effectual calling. A calling that has an actual effect by the Spirit of God to bring you into a saving relationship with God. You see, those whom God calls are surely brought to faith in Jesus. You see, that, that's good news, Christian, that your salvation is due entirely to God's gracious choice of you. His sovereign grace has saved you. The reason that's good news, because this sovereign grace that saved you is the same grace that will keep you until the end. You see, Jude, he writes here to the call, to those who've been saved by God's grace, through faith in Jesus. And the description of those called by God, it gets even more beautiful. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Beloved in God and kept are both descriptions of the called. So you may think of of being called as something that primarily happened in your past, like when you first came to believe in, in Jesus. That is, the moment you first believed, that was when God called you to Himself. It's when you were brought into God's family, adopted as one of His children through faith in Jesus. But consider that the word called, it's not just talking about the past, but it's talking about our present. We've been called to this life of love in God the Father. It also talks about our future. Our calling is that we will be preserved and kept as one of His children until the end. Nothing can change that. No one can snatch us out of the hand of Jesus as what Jesus himself proclaims. So for those who trusted in Christ, you see this kind of salvation order here. Called, loved, kept. It's so encouraging as a Christian because as much as we can rejoice in our salvation, like if I ask you, you know, your testimony, probably the first thing that's going to come to your mind is when you were converted, when you put your faith in Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing is to recount that moment. But consider, Christian, there are testimonies of God's grace being formed in your life right now because you're loved by God. There's a testimony of God's grace and suffering and hardship because we are loved by God the Father. Nothing can change that. And we also have the assurance that the best is yet to come, meaning we are kept until the end, until Christ returns or until we go to be with Him. And that encourages us that the greatest testimonies in our lives by God's grace, they've yet to happen. We have hope in Jesus. You see, for those who've trusted in Christ, your present testimony is you are beloved by God, beloved in God the Father. So, so Christian, by God's grace, He rescued you from sin. He took you from living in sin to living in His love. So it means to live as a Christian, to, to enjoy God, to know His love for us. You see, God saved us to love us. God saved us to love us, to lead us away from our rebellion against Him and away from a relationship of hostility to a relationship of of love. Like we read this morning in Romans chapter 5, that we have peace with God now through faith in Jesus Christ, which means we're in a loving, peaceful relationship. That wasn't true before we became Christians. And the present reality that we're loved, it drastically changes our future. In the future, those who are called are kept for Jesus Christ. That word kept means to guard. 
That, that word kept means to protect. So those who, whom God calls, again, salvation order, those He calls, He loves, and He keeps, and He protects every last one of His children, that by the same grace that God called you to Himself by His Spirit, by that same grace you're loved this morning by the Father, and by that same grace you are kept for Jesus the Son. You see, called, loved, and kept, it's a framework to view the entire book of Jude through. But I think it's also a framework to view the entire Christian life through. Don't skip over the introduction to the letter and get to the body. In fact, the introduction might be the most encouraging part of this letter in addition to the doxology there at the end. This, this framework, called, loved, kept, it doesn't speak to what we've done. It speaks to what God alone has done and will do. We couldn't call ourselves. We couldn't possibly earn His love. If left to ourselves, we are prone to wander. You see, the confidence in our salvation is that it's all of God's grace in Christ. Well, Christian, how much of a difference would it make in your life this week to remember that you are loved by God in your suffering, in sorrow, in hardship, in pain, in every failing, that you're loved by God? How would that speak to your trials? How would that speak to anxious thoughts? How would that speak to pain that you know in your life that God loves you and He indeed will keep you? You know, I had a conversation recently uh, with an Uber driver, and uh, he told me he was Muslim, and I, and I asked him just a little bit, well, I want to share my faith with him. Uber rides typically are a pretty good time to do that if you're a driver is willing to have the conversation with you. And, uh, and I asked him, you know, did he expect to go to heaven when he died? And he told me he wasn't sure. And I asked him, I said, has Muhammad told you how good you have to be to get to heaven? And he said, no. And I said, well, as a Christian, I do expect to go to heaven when I die, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus himself has done. He lived the perfect life I couldn't live. He died the death that I deserved. And God raised him from the dead that I might be forgiven of my sins and brought into a right relationship with God. And I said, that brings me assurance. And I just said, with all due respect, I don't know how you live not knowing what your future is going to be like, your eternal future. It'd be like going to school your whole life, enrolling in college, taking lots of exams and writing papers, never getting a grade, never knowing if you were meeting up to the expectations of your professors. And then on that last day, standing up on the stage for graduation and wondering if you'd passed and done well enough to receive your degree. That would be a terrifying four years at a university. I can't imagine approaching life like that. You see, Jesus is the only way to God. And therefore, for those who put their faith in Jesus, we have confidence. He will keep us to the end. We don't have to live depending on ourselves or with any anxious thoughts about the future. Christ speaks to all of those anxious thoughts. Well, before Jude got into threats and dangers of false teaching around them and contending that they would need to be a part of in the faith, he wanted his readers to know the power of God for salvation. And then he closes his introduction there in verse 2 with a prayer. It's a prayer for these Christians. You see that word may? So that's, that's language of prayer. He's, he's asking God to do something for them. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So it's a prayer of blessing and there, there really are two trios we've seen in the first two verses of Jude, and he likes to use trios quite a bit. We'll see that in the rest of the letter. The first trio, called, beloved, kept. The second group of three or trio here, three blessings, mercy, peace, 
and love. And he prays that these blessings would be multiplied. If something's multiplied, that means increased greatly. Now consider, in order for something to be multiplied, you have to already possess it. You can't multiply something from zero. So you have to already possess it. So he's saying, Christian, you've already come to know God's mercy. God's been merciful in not giving you what you deserve, pardoning your sin against God through faith in Jesus. Through the blood of Christ, God has overcome your sin and already brought you into a peaceful relationship with God. You've got peace with God, and you know peace from God and His throne. And from that moment you first believe, His deep love was set upon you. And you live under His deep love, adopted into God's family in a loving relationship with Him as a father. Jude's desire for them, know that mercy, know that peace, know that love, but he's praying that these blessings would increase in their lives. I think what that highlights for you and I is that the called are not to be content to remain where you're at spiritually. We're to pray for increase, for growth. That is the normal Christian life by God's grace. These blessings would increase in our life. It's a, it's a good thing to pray for your own life. We need to be careful that we're seeking to grow and that we're asking God to bring increasing blessing, that we'd live in light of His mercy and peace and love. And we need to guard against being content to remain where we're at spiritually. So I wonder this morning, brother and sister in the Lord, are you content with where you're at spiritually? And by that I mean to remain where you're at spiritually. Are you praying for and seeking more spiritual growth in your life. It's a good thing to pray. God is honored when we come and lift that prayer up to Him. It's a great prayer to pray for your own soul, to pray for your family, to pray for your church family, for the blessings of mercy and peace and love to increase in your life. Well, those who are called, loved, and kept by God's grace live a life of increasing blessing in Jesus. As we walk with our confidence in Christ and His calling, we faithfully serve God, which brings us to our second point, a second response in verses 3 and 4, contend for the unchanging truth. Contend for the unchanging truth. Every letter has a purpose, whether you're writing to thank someone or writing to express appreciation to someone, a letter is written for a specific purpose. And we see the purpose of this letter in verses 3 and 4. There's something urgent that Jude needs to write about. Now, at the beginning of verse 3, you read that he, he initially intended to write a different letter about our common salvation. So he intended to write a, a doctrinal letter teaching about the grace of God that they share in Jesus and their salvation. And he gave a little bit of a taste of that in the greeting. And if you look ahead, Jude closes the letter rejoicing in that common salvation and a doxology. You see, Jude wanted to write a different letter, but we read here that he saw an urgent matter that needed to be addressed. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that sentence helps us grasp the purpose of this letter. They needed to contend for the faith. There was was threats, and we'll read about this false teaching later on in the book, but there was false teaching opposing the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and Jude was calling them together as as a church, as churches, to contend for the faith. Now, to contend, it means to fight. 
It, it means to strive. And the Greek word for contend is where we get our English word agonize from. It's a, it's a striving. And this word contend, it's a combat term. It's also used in kind of athletic context. So the metaphor, I think the image this gives is one of a wrestling match. And a wrestling match involves two opponents wrestling, they're striving, twisting, struggling until one prevails. Now, my older brother was a wrestler. He was just a year older than me, ahead of me in, in high school. Uh, and he wrestled, and I was on the football team. And he used to talk a lot of trash to me as an older brother about how much better shape they were on the wrestling team, which really was true. I mean, if football players went out for the wrestling team, we'd be winded quite often. Uh, but he would talk about how much better conditioned they were because they had to be in condition. They had to have more than just like the strong biceps and kind of those obvious muscles. They needed muscles that were prepared to, to, for strenuous activity. They needed endurance to last through a, a wrestling match. The so wrestlers had to be in top condition. In fact, he would even run around in something called a sauna suit, which is really ridiculous that you'd wear something like this, but he would do this to cut weight. He would have this like silver sauna suit on and run so they could sweat weight off so they could actually wrestle at a lower weight than what their true weight was. Well, why? So they could gain an advantage over their opponent. As soon as they weighed in, they could get their weight back up. But they were looking for every advantage to prevail in this competition of striving. So the image that Jude gives here is like a wrestler, striving with all their might, out of breath, straining for that little bit of endurance, yet exerting that final bit of effort to prevail. Jude is saying, strive in that manner for the faith. Now, the word faith, it certainly can refer to personal trust in God. We all need to personally trust in God if we're going to be saved. But there are also times in the Bible where the word faith refers to the, the Christian system of belief and practice. So like in Galatians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul speaks to preaching the faith, which is the, the content of Christian doctrine. So here in verse 3, the faith, it doesn't refer to personal trust, rather it refers into, to what is believed. So the faith, simply put, Christian doctrine, the divinely inspired content of the truth about Jesus, handed down by Jesus and the apostles. So the teaching of Jesus, the apostles' teaching, teaching about Jesus, His person, and His work. The, the faith necessarily includes the gospel message, who God is, who we are, and our, our sin against Him, who Christ is, and being fully God and fully man, what He did in laying His life down to die on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, and the need to repent and believe in Him for forgiveness of, of sins. All of that is included in the faith. And in fact, as a, as a church, we have a church statement of faith. So it's just kind of showing the doctrine of this church, the doctrine that every single member of this church uh, believes. You know, we teach through that statement of faith in the membership class. Everyone who's joined this church has signed that statement of faith saying, this is what we believe. It goes into topics like uh, the Bible, God, sin, Jesus, the church, baptism, the Lord's Supper. It's the content of faith that we have unity in. And with that body of doctrine of Christian faith, I think the faith also implies conformity to the commands of Scripture. So I think it's belief and practice, obedience to Jesus and 
to the Word of God. This faith was once for all delivered to the saints, which means handed down by Jesus himself through the apostles. So, so these, uh, these original churches, whoever the audience was here for the book of Jude, they received their faith from teachers, the apostles, and possibly even from Jude himself. And I think this also implies by the time that Jude wrote this letter, the foundational teaching of the Christian faith had already been established. It was being circulated and taught the content of the Christian faith. Now that phrase, once for all, it proclaims the truth. But the Christian faith does not change. The content of our faith is an unchanging truth, meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ does not change. It will change you, but the gospel itself does not change. There's no need for additions to the gospel. God's Word, the Bible, does not need to be edited. No cultural revisions need to be made. The Word of God is not up for grabs from continent to continent, or culture to culture, or from generation to generation. We don't need to update the Christian faith. You see, we have an ancient story, an old, old story. We didn't come up with it. We received it. We've put our faith in Jesus. You see, the content of our faith, the Word of God, it does not need to be added to. We're not waiting for some new revelation of God. We're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ when God will finally reveal Himself in the return of Jesus that will be unmistakable, that all will see Jesus return. But we're not waiting for a new Word from God. We've got the pages of the Bible. We've got the canon of Scripture, which contains the full content of God's revelation to us. We need refreshers but we don't need anything new. The content of our faith, God's Word, the truth about Jesus is unchanging. Now, verse 4 gives insight into why they needed to contend for the faith. Jude gives a description of false teachers for certain people. That's, that's the only kind of recognition he'll give them, certain people. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. He's talking about false teachers. They've slipped into the church again persecution attacks a church from outside the walls of the church. False teaching attacks a church from inside the walls of the church. And evidently, there were false teachers here who kind of slipped in unnoticed, subtly entered in. They didn't announce themselves from the beginning, but through their preaching and their teaching, it became clear they really were not of the Christian faith. They weren't preaching the content of the Christian faith. Jude tells us they were ungodly people and they will be judged by God. Lord willing, we'll read more about that in the rest of the letter. But for now, I want us to look at two reasons why they'll be judged. That's really what first four is telling us. Number one, they pervert the grace of God. And number two, they deny Jesus as Lord. There's two reasons why they'll be judged. They'll be judged because they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. That to pervert is to change or to twist something in a way that alters its nature. Perverting the grace of God is to alter an understanding of God's grace in a way that seeks to excuse sin. Not, 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 not to call us to repent of our sin, but rather just to excuse it, act like it doesn't really matter to God. You can really live however you want to live. So this context here, we see the word sensuality. It refers to sexual sin. So to pervert the grace of God into sensuality speaks of a licentious attitude. So it's using God's grace and His love 
as an excuse to sin. It, it would sound something like, well, just live however you want to live. As long as you just like, before you put your head down on your pillow, just pray and ask God to forgive you like you're cool. And then just wake up and keep living like that and just pray that each night and you'll be fine, which is not the Christian gospel. Again, the gospel changes us. A true understanding of grace, we read in Titus chapter 2, that the grace of God, verse 12, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, these teachers evidently were promoting sexual immorality by presuming upon the grace of God. Secondly, Jude says they will be judged because they deny our master, our only master, and Lord Jesus Christ. So these, these teachers were denying the lordship of Jesus. Through immoral living, they were living as if obedience and teaching that obedience doesn't really matter. Now the problem is, we saw at the very beginning of the letter, Christians, by God's grace, live under the authority of Jesus. Like Jude referenced in the greeting, we are His servants. We, we seek to honor Him and how we live. And these teachers were denying the authority of Jesus Christ as master and Lord, denying His authority. Well, this situation, Jude, it's, it's the same situation that churches face today. Society is changing. Culture, it changes. Many of you think about what life was like here in 2000. In 12, what life is like just 10 years later in 2022? Laws have changed. Specifically, we think about rapidly changing sexual ethics in society because this passage is actually dealing with sexual immorality. They're rapidly changing sexual ethics in society. We live in a culture in the last few years that is speaking in a way that is confusing what a man is and what a woman is. A culture that's confused on marriage. The definition of marriage has changed in the last 10 years. Even how politicians choose to define that. Very different. Presidents, one term, defining it one way, and the second term, a different way. Things are changing. And with that, there are even churches that call themselves Christian churches that have changed their doctrine. They've decided to remove certain things, certain sexual sins in particular, off of the sin list. And we don't have the authority to do that. The Bible doesn't need to be edited, and we are not authorized to edit the Bible. We, we have an un changing faith. Even as there's social pressure placed on us, that what it means to truly be loving is to change the truth. As we've looked at in 2 John and 3 John early in the summer, as Christians, we're called to speak the truth in love. It would be an unloving thing to do, to deny the truth of God's Word, to try to, to change it. You see, we don't need to change the truth to welcome people. God's grace makes room for everyone. God's grace welcomes everyone. All who would repent of their sin and believe in Jesus are welcomed to the throne of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, God's grace transforms us. God's grace doesn't accommodate our sin. Rather, God's grace lifts the power of sin from over us, where we no longer have to live as slaves to sin, dominated by the power and force of the sin that we were born into. And see, God will do that for you today if you change your mind about sin and agree with His Word and put your faith in Jesus Christ to be forgiven of your sin. You see, we can't change the faith. You either submit to Jesus or you continue to live in rebellion against Him. And for Christians, our testimony is that by God's grace alone, we've been brought to submit to Jesus Christ 
as Lord. Well, there are some things that are worth fighting for. And the Christian faith, according to Jude, is worth fighting for, worth contending for. Contending for the faith. How does that, that work? Well, first of all, I think it is the work of all Christians, but you might wonder, how does that work? Well, later on in Jude, he addresses that. So we'll get to more of the how, Lord willing, in a few weeks. But let me give you a few points of application to close out our time for what it looks like to contend for the faith. Number one, contending, contend for the faith by proclaiming the faith. Contend for the faith by proclaiming the faith. So the best way to defend the faith is to proclaim it, to teach it. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon put it like this, suppose a number of persons were to take, take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. We'll contend for the faith by unleashing it. Proclaim the truth about Jesus. Teach the faith in the church. That's what we want to do in preaching and teaching ministry here in a local church. Teach the faith. Proclaim the faith in your homes. Share the faith and proclaim it among your families and your friends and your neighbors. Teach the faith to those who don't know about Jesus. You see, something you don't want to assume about family members or friends or co-workers that, that aren't in the faith, that haven't put their faith in Jesus, don't assume that they know what the Christian faith is. That can often be an obstacle to evangelism. You think, oh, they, they know it all. They just don't really care. But I think most often they really don't know the Christian faith. They might think they know. They might know things about Jesus. But a great question to ask someone is, do you think you understand the message of Christianity? And, and then go on and just proclaim what the message of Christianity is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Teach the faith. Don't, don't assume. A second point of application, contend without being contentious. Contend without being contentious. The world around us is contentious. We are called to be peacemakers. I mean, it doesn't mean we back away from the truth. It means we can contend for the truth without being contentious. Consider that contending for the faith isn't something negative. It doesn't picture an, an angry person. So don't be an angry Baptist, right? If you're in the cage stage, get some help to get out of the cage. Like, don't remain in the cage stage. We have a beautiful truth to proclaim that should bring joy. We know it's hard to stand firm on the truth, but that doesn't mean we should be angry about it. You see, contending is, is not destructive, but contending is constructive. Contend, contending edifies and it, it builds up. It doesn't tear down. Don't confuse contending with being quarrelsome or argumentative. You certainly make arguments and there's a place for debate and godly debate. It's standing up for the truth rather and striving. Contending for the faith is not church members bickering with one another. It's not what contending for the faith is. We have a unity in our statement of faith. There might be disagreements we have on other secondary and tertiary matters of doctrine. We allow for that because our statement of faith, it gets specific, but there are other things in there like uh, the end times, when will the millennium be, that people may have different views on. Uh, we are free to talk about that and try to persuade one another, but we want to steer clear of being quarrelsome or bickering with one another. We should guard against being contentious and unkind 
and lacking grace or charity. And a third point of application, contend for the faith by growing in your knowledge of the faith. Never stop seeking to know the Bible. I'm thankful for testimonies we see in our church of people who've been Christians for decades. Uh, People here are seniors, and they continue to come up to me on Sunday mornings and talk about things they learned. What a great example for all of us. There's still so much to learn about God's Word. We're not going to be able to contend the faith if we think we know everything about the faith and stop giving ourselves to learning the Bible. You see, one important aid for contending for the faith is growing in your knowledge and the content of it. Just as athletes train to compete, Christians, we must train. We must train to learn the Word of God and to grow for the purpose of contending for the faith. And I would encourage you, church, take advantage of what the elders of this church have planned for you in the preaching and teaching ministries of this church. When the church gathers, plan to be here. I love that we've even got things this week like VBS. Uh, What a wonderful opportunity to teach this next generation the content of the Christian faith. I'm a big fan of VBS and personally benefited from that as a child myself with my parents taking me. I love that we offer equipping hour. I'm I'm telling you, I've got conversations with pastors so much recently that in the past 15, 20 years, churches have chosen a community-driven approach, which certainly has its strengths in building relationships, but with that community-driven approach, have left behind an education ministry in the local church. And I don't think that's a good thing to skip or, or miss. I don't think that's a net gain for many churches to leave behind an, an education ministry. So when we start that back up after Labor Day, I would encourage you to come and to make time for that and grow in your knowledge of the Bible, of Christian faith and practice. You see, contending for the faith, it's the work of all Christians. And just like in Jude's setting, we live in a setting where we must contend for the unchanging truth. So let's seek to know the truth, to proclaim the truth, to cling to the truth, and may we seek to live all of our life with a close orientation to the Bible, to God's Word. And may we remember that the confidence to contend for the faith is found in our calling. As we serve God in this world, which involves necessarily contending for the faith, we can have confidence in God's calling in the present and in the future, that because it was God who did the saving in our life and called us, our salvation is secure in Him. Our future is sure. The path may be filled with threats. It may be filled with trouble. Yet if we belong to Jesus, our confidence is this. He will hold us fast. Amen? Those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost His promises shall last, bought by Him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray.